they literally said, well, just create these interim steps in there. So we ended up with this organisational chart that basically had level, I think it was three. So CEO was one, we were at three. And then we had 3.1, 3 3.2, 3. <laughs> that sounds really motivating. <laughs> Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. This week, we turn our attention to the workplace. Since the COVID pandemic, there's been many major changes in the way we work and continued discussion and conjecture on the way we should work in the future. But no matter if you're a work from home or a return to the office or somewhere in between, you'll enjoy my conversation today with Liam Walsh, who returns to the Managing Marketing podcast. Now, Liam's a consultant, an equities investor, executive coach, digital media guru, an aspiring ally, ally or ally, ally or I ally? Don't know. I don't okay. know. Ally to gender equality. He is a tad dysle- dyslexic, and so am I, um, <laughs> but not heaps. And now he's an author. With the release of his book, The Corporate Charade, Why Not Just Be Yourself at Work, which he's here to discuss. Please welcome to Managing Marketing, Liam Walsh. Welcome, Liam. Thanks, Darren. I'm stoked to be here only 47 years after the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Liam, it's great to catch up because, you know, um, well, first of all, the book, which is amazing. I mean, I read it over the weekend and it made me laugh out loud, which is a real credit to you. Uh, And secondly... I wouldn't mind talking about the fact that, you know, your experience is virtually ideal for writing this book because you've had some really senior management roles in some very large companies, haven't you? I have. But before I answer, before I talk about that, you have to tell me, Darren, how long did it take you to read it? Well, probably about six hours, I'd say. Oh, okay. Okay. Why? I thought, Why? I thought it would have been, I think, because I think it's got like a writing age of four. So I think you can get through it pretty quick. Oh, yeah, I'm a very slow reader. <laughs> I, I'm actually one of those people that moves my lips as I read still. So that's I like the Homer, the Homer Simpson model. It's a great model. <laughs> so, yeah, I have worked for a bunch of pretty successful companies. I normally end up working for American companies uh, because I'm like a, a interpret for Americans how to enter and work with Australians because Australians tell the truth. Americans are more exciting in general with the yeah. narrative. And that's kind of how we got to this book, which was to compare real life to maybe what work life looks like. Well, yeah, and you, and you say, you know, almost as a throwaway line, some American companies, but we're talking about, you know, Microsoft advertising, Facebook, who you were with for quite a while, and, and Moby, which is more a global company. But, uh, yeah. you know, these are really big businesses, aren't they? Yeah, they're huge. They're absolutely vast. And I normally have got in in the early growth phase because that's such an attractive phase, quite honestly, to work in yeah. because politics is quite low. It's They're terribly well-funded, like very well-funded, and so you get to ride this wave of kind of innovation, excitement, and challenge a brand and challenge things. Um, and then I would typically kind of move on to the next kind of challenge, yeah. in, which was something like a, if you look at a Moby, that was, uh, is, was very big in mobile when mobile was you know, really taking off. Facebook was, you know, 11 years ago when it was when it was high growth phase and not as successful as now. Yeah. So, but not just big companies, you also had very senior roles. I mean, I know titles can be misleading because, yeah. you know, there's, there's this thing called title promotion, but you were a managing director in most of those companies, which meant you had some sort of defined 
scope of responsibility. Yeah, I think I've been like the MD or GM, what do you want to call that, the top for since the year 2001. Yeah, so it's been yeah twenty two years, twenty twenty more than twenty being, years of being in charge of a large group of people. Yeah, which is great and a little, as a WA premier might say, a little bit exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and you know everyone in business always says the biggest challenge is people, and that is one of the roles is to manage people to meet the expectation of the business, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually, and even though. Anyone who would talk to me would say that I don't like managing people, and even myself, I would say that. I actually really do. Like, I get a big kick out of developing people and seeing them like grow in terms of IQ and EQ. Yeah, it's really exciting. I do whinge a lot about it. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I also get a big kick out of it. Yeah, and, and look, the reason I raise that is because what I found reading the book, and that's the corporate charade: why not just be yourself at work? was that a lot of it is about the way in businesses we treat people and we treat them in a way that just would never cut it in in sort of our real lives outside of work. No way would it ever cut it. And it's a funny thing because we, we, the corporate entities, say people are our greatest asset. Yeah. And we obviously don't mean that because the greatest asset would be the coal that we're digging out of the ground or the social network that we've built, that's the biggest asset. But we do tend to say, but I think to some extent what we really mean is people are our asset. Well, I think, yeah, the interpretation. an asset. Yeah, it's an asset that you hopefully realise value, shareholder value, right? Um, But it's not an asset that you can sell. It's certainly not CapEx. No, it's not CapEx. (laughs) It's OPEX. Because you can't actually realise the value of them by selling them. Because I think that's called slavery, <laughs> yes. isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> yes. And it's not, it's not really, I think it's not really plausible. It's a bit like um, when, when the humans, us humans here, we are the company's greatest asset. We think that would be nice. But we know it's not true. Yeah. We're not the greatest asset. But there are a lot of terms in business like you know our people our, our biggest asset walks out the door every night and you know to your point but there are a lot of terms in business aren't there that, you know, I think um it was called weasel words you know they're, they're almost phrases that get thrown around to avoid saying what you really mean we're inclined in business to use weasel words like our best asset um instead of really using plain language yeah and I think in plain language we should adopt plain language for company values yeah. because the company values are normally determined, which I think is also in the book, but at an offsite. Yeah. You know, we sit around, and I've done this many times, in comfort determining values for the company, which we would like to be true. Oh, I have that personal experience. When I started Trinity P3, we had a executive coach come in and we spent a day and about three quarters of the way through, we suddenly looked at the wall and it said, uh, honest. Uh, uh, Inspiring. You know, yeah. It was all these terms. And I said, but what if we're none of those? What if we were the opposite? Like these are table stakes, you know, that if you weren't those, what are you? Well, that, and that's, that's the, the weird thing because I think when you do the values, you ship them out to the company, all hands, jazz hands, and then later on, you, we asked the staff, we put it on, we put it on signs on the wall yeah. everywhere, right? These are the company values. But when we asked the staff, if they're not near the sign, 
like what are the three company values, oh. they're always scratching their head going, oh, I don't know. But it's not hard to remember three words. That's no. really easy to do. And then you go, why don't I remember? And I was like, because the values are really reflective of mine. Yeah. If I walk into that company, I have my values. The company says, you should have our values. And you're like, well, I can't really. Like if yours is, in, if yours is conservative and mine is innovative, these are my values. I can't change them nine to five. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But I also think it's because they're not really inspirational. Like people are attracted to other people that are inspirational. Yeah. But I think many of these things to the point I made before, you know, they're table stakes. We, we're honest, <laughs> we've got integrity and we're innovative, right? And it's like, okay, fine, but that's not inspiring me. It's setting the, the bar pretty low when, yeah. when you say we'll be honest. Yeah, and, and have integrity and be inspirational. And it's like, well, we're creative. You know? <laughs> that's one of the things that drives me crazy about the advertising industry. We're creative. And it's like, okay, I'd expect that. <laughs> yes. What else could you be? Yeah, like are you going to have any agency that goes, we're anti-creative, like it's almost you expect it so it's not going to inspire me because if you're not that, you're not going to cut it in this business, in that category. I think probably specifically in the advertising industry, you would expect it to be creative. Yeah. You would probably also expect it to do a lot of advertising yeah. for its own business. <laughs> Which they don't. <laughs> <laughs> we think of it as a funny little nuance because we're in advertising. But in any other industry, I think they look at that and go, that's not really okay. Yeah. Trinity P3. Now, Liam, the thing I, about the book is that, you know, we're talking about marketing, media yeah. and advertising, but this actually has application way beyond that category. And I love the fact that you've dealt with all of the many aspects of business generally, you know, recruitment, uh, value statements, what else? Um, business cases. Business, de developing business cases, which I thought was brilliant, you know. And what, what was the inspiration? At what point did you sit down and go, there needs to be a, a document that captures all of the sort of anomalies between the way we behave and the way people behave? So probably two things. One was quite a, not very personal, but it was, but it was one on one. And I hired a friend to come in and solve a problem with Adops or something. He's, he's a brainiac and Adops wasn't working. And so anyway, two weeks later, I saw him and he said, I said, how's it going? He said, it's great. He goes, it's weird working with you, though, because you're my friend. And I went, oh, what's weird about that? He goes, you're exactly the same at the pub as you are at work. And I went, well, who else would I be? And he goes, anyone else. This is not what I'm used to. I said, oh, is it a problem? He goes, no, I love it. It's great. Like working with someone who's real. I'm like, oh, okay, no big deal, walk away. That was kind of the starting point to go, actually, why am I anomalous, if that's a word, mm. to the to others? And and I am. And then that got that started getting me thinking about when I do work and interact with people, particularly with clients, the rules of engagement are so strange. And honesty is just kind of like this, maybe we'll have some in this conversation, yeah. whereas when we do do the honesty in that conversation, when I did it um, or where I watched other people do it, the conversation was so much better. Yeah. Like this conversation, it's just very honest. There's not, not nothing sinister or political in it. It's just a conversation. No, it's really interesting you say that because, you know, there's a, there's a famous saying which is uh, once you master sincerity, anything's possible. 
Yeah. Right? Yes. And, and there are so yes. many people that, uh, you know, through my career in advertising and, and now consulting, where you run into people that it's, you almost detect the lack of sincerity because they're being someone that doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't feel like they're being a real person because they've put this costume on and they're playing the role of a managing director or, or a, a creative director or whatever. And that kind of gets that, like, I can't pretend that having more successful business is my motivation for this. My motivation is to not have to put the costume on because the other side of that conversation goes, I see the costume, I don't know what to believe. And that's just a terrible way to spend hours and hours and hours every day. Well, I think that's part of what leads to burnout and you know and, yeah. and no. mental health issues and physical health issues is keeping up the the pretense, the act. The act you know that you're constantly performing, almost like a trained dog, you know, or, or the monkey on the uh, the the grinder, you know. Which I think in that in the, I think an example, real life example of that is when there's a presentation, whether that's what you do and people are doing, you know, big pitches. When people do a presentation, when someone asks, "How was that?" The question is, how was the presentation? The answer is, it was pretty good yeah. or not very good. But it's not the point. The presentation was meant to communicate some information. That's but, right. But we're so used to being presented to that we just switch off and go, yeah, it was pretty good. She spoke well. But what was it about? Yeah. Like, oh, it's, it, look, I, lo- I, I love the fact that you've pulled that out because we see this all the time. And I find generally men are more focused <laughs> on their performance Right, than women who are inclined to be, you know, taking in how it lands on the other side of the table. And I actually had a pitch where I was walking the agency out afterwards, and the men were all slapping each. Oh, that was great! You did oh, really gosh. well, right? Close and, to the bone. And and one of the women said, uh, the, the, "In fact, I think she, the only woman in the panel turned around and said, no, I'm not sure the client really bought it.'" And they're like, "Oh, don't be stupid!" You know, <laughs> like it was almost. Didn't you see how good we are? You know, and I think that's really important. You know, great communication comes from not by how well you say something, but by how well the person listening to it embraces the information and processes it. Yeah. Well, you normally they're good. A lot of it's just listening. Yeah. It's just presenting. But you're right. It is about how they feel, and normally they feel like an audience. It is. It is also a lack of. Honesty, you know, there is a thing in society where we don't give honest feedback on how we're feeling, you know. And I had a conversation with a marketer <laughs> just recently and they were telling me, oh, yeah, we ran our own pitch and they were almost apologetic. I said, that's fine. You, know, you can run your own pitch. Oh, we selected an agency because they were really good, this and this and this. And I said, well, it's interesting you should say that because they're all rational reasons. But I'm pretty sure you probably chose them because they just felt right. And she went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah you're, you're probably right. And I said, it's like all of us. We buy things because it makes us feel good or feel right. And then we build all these rational reasons afterwards. And I see that when people are giving feedback. And one of the things you write in the book is about that whole performance review, you know, how it's become almost like ludicrous that in a world where there's so much interaction, you're still required to give feedback. Well, I think there's bits, there's bits in the book around feedback is a gift. Yeah, yeah. I love that bit, yeah. <laughs> and then there's a bit around performance reviews. The performance reviews are particularly strange, but they seem sensible because we deal with that manager. Everyone has a manager somehow every day. Yeah. Right, um, 
And as we go through the performance review, it's like, I'm going to judge you, Lee. I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong. You're going to pretend to agree with my assessments, give me a little bit of fight, and then you're not going to you're not going to talk about how I could be better. Or if, if I do invite you, it's like one minute and make it nice. Maybe you should email me more. But it's not actually like a critical review to go, well, actually, a bit of a micromanager, senior bully people. Yeah. You know, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that feels like a ludicrous contract, particularly when we see each other every single day. Yeah. That once a year we'll talk formally is strange. And it's, you know, it's just awkward. And then the feedback notion. Be- well, because that's a better technique to just build in feedback. Yes, build in feedback. day to day. Correct. You know. And in, in fact, um, and it, know, does, it encourage is it. Encourage it. You know? Here's what I want to do or here's what I'm planning to do. What do you think? Yeah. You know, how well would this work? And that's kind of like the, I think having worked in some really massive you know, enterprises that have $100 billion in cash yeah. know, in the bank right now. That notion of feedback is a gift in large enterprises is a really strange concept because it's sort of, without being dramatic, a bit weaponized. Yeah. So you say, I've got some feedback for you, Darren. Um, I think you make people intimidated and scared and you just have to take that feedback as gospel. If you say, I don't, I'm actually highly empathetic and I listen, then I will say, you're not taking the feedback, Darren. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> so you have to take the bloody feedback. Yeah. And so that's where in a smaller company, you might get feedback. And what you're talking about, just ongoing feedback. And I don't want to reference the, the book too much uh, because it's boring. But No, it's not. The book is not boring. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it's very – I get sent a lot of books. I actually bought – first of all, I bought Thank it, you for that. Right? That's um, a result. And secondly, you know, I, as soon as I started reading, I, I read half of the book you know, on a flight. Oh, yeah. And then the other half on the return flight. So that's how I know it was about six hours. And it was one of those books that you just kept reading. I mean, first of all, the format. But the other thing I like is the way you approach it, you know, that a lot of it is putting a particular business behaviour in real-life situations to show really how unacceptable or ludicrous it is, you know. And I think that's a really powerful thing because... I think for most people, when you go into work mode, your brain almost switches to that's the way it should be, you know, that I'm operating in that world. And until you get that juxtaposition that you provide, it makes you suddenly go, oh, holy crap, you know, I've been operating like this and it's not very real. It's not very real. And I I think it feels a bit like, and I'm exaggerating, but it feels a bit obviously exaggerating, a bit like Jumanji. Yes. Right. So if we go for the like the interview process. So we're testing the core competencies for the second interview. Now you would think if you have these three things you want to know that this human can do, that you would want to know what they can do. Yeah. What do we do? We say, come in for the second interview. We'll have we'll have a list here of our secret questions. And then we'll take you and then we'll ask you the question. And you'll have to answer really well. Give me the best example in your life. Yeah. Now my On case, the spot. Yeah, I've worked 23 years. I've got a reference 11 years ago. Remember their names and what happened. Or we could just tell you what we're going to ask you. And then you would come with your best and answer. be prepared. But if we do that, the organisation will say, no, we need to test them. That they carry that all that knowledge of in 23 years and can instantly recall it. That would be cheating if we told them, like, it would be cheating if we told them what we want to know in advance. Yes, that's a problem. <laughs> Trinity P3. Look, and the other one um, about uh, recruiting people that I really liked is that excuse of, 
oh, we can't um, employ them because they're overqualified for the role. And I love the example you use, which is the neurosurgeon or... Uh, or brain surgeon. Brain surgeon, yeah. Um, who, uh, you know, why would you not go with the best qualified brain surgeon and yet someone that's overqualified? Now, explain it because, you know, I just love the way that you... What well, is? I've had it a lot of times where I have interviewed amazing candidates, and the rest of the panel have said they're a bit overqualified. They'll get bored, and you're like, okay, is our main concern <laughs> that someone we hire will get do an excellent job, and then eventually get bored and leave? And the normal response is yes. And I'm like, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy with excellent work done by an excellent person who may get bored and leave versus hiring someone. Who will also leave and won't do an excellent job. But the fact that they've applied for the job and turned up for an interview and gone through this process shows that they're interested. They yeah. at least have some, you know, tacit interest in the role. So whether they get bored down the track, because ultimately no one stays in a job forever unless they're what? I know. Well, it's a bit like <laughs> I think if you're coaching like the Lake or the moment, the Celtics, if yeah. you're coaching the Celtics and Minnesota go, we want that guy. To come work for us, you would try to get that guy. You wouldn't say, "I oh, know that guy will get bored." <laughs> <laughs> you go, "No, what the best coach in the world? Let's go get that guy." But the company would go, "No, no, we'll just take someone average." Yeah. But there is this obsession with retention, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Like, and and even the advertising industry, which has a high churn rate, you know, it can be between thirty and forty percent of their staff a year can turn over in agencies. Yeah, but there's this obsession about locking people in. Yeah, I find that that notion, that there's two streams I think to retention. One which is like, it is sometimes an indicator that you've got a problem in your company. Yeah. Like you, you don't treat people well and so they leave. There's another piece of it where, you, where we think all retention is bad. I mean, all, all churn. Of, all, all churn, churn is bad, yeah. sorry. Um, but often it's just, a, it's really just graduating. If you, re, if you reframe retention, you could reframe it literally using the word of graduating. And put that in the spreadsheet in the company in HR. Darren graduated, Liam graduated, because that person learnt a lot, and then they went and did something else that excited them. Or if they got more yeah. money, that's okay too. They went for more money. They went for a new job. They went to manage people. They went nowhere. None of that really matters if we take the view that they learnt a lot and did a lot for the company, and they graduated just like they did at university. Yeah, it would be weird to do year twelve for ten years. Yeah. But, but it's sort of, I'm exaggerating, but it's sort of what a company looks like. Just do the same thing for 10 years. It's like, I don't want to. It's yeah. not sensible. No one wins in this world. Let people graduate. I think it's a hangover because, you know, I know my father's generation, he worked for one company for 40 years. Honestly? Right? Yeah, for 40 years. Wow. And it changed three times. It started off as the PMG and then it became uh, 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 Telecom and then Telstra. So he worked for one company with three different names. But for 40 Telecom. years. And and he just, you know, had this career path where there was incremental steps every three to five years and, and they had it, you know, he had this what he felt was a career plan. But it's much harder today for any organization because we're flattened Pretty flat. that organizational structure, you know. And then and, and you highlight in the book the way we've overcome that is created these fake steps within, it's within that structure. It is so strange. None of that, that is all true. And in some companies, they actually have this. So they want it to be flat. The problem is the employee goes, I want it to be flat too. And then they, after a year, they want to get promoted. 
and you can't get promoted to anything because it's flat. So they've created these levels which is which exists. So you'll have a job title like project manager level something, and normally it's a secret, and you can't tell your colleagues what level you are, or you'll get a warning. Yeah. So on, on the and you all get promoted the same day, and then they say, Liam, you're now a project manager. We've promoted you to project manager. Yeah. So it's just this really awkward construct. It's fake. And when we go home, I say, honey, I got promoted. She's like, it sounds the same. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I got a new secret level. Liam, I worked, we, we did some work with a bank that was six levels from the teller in the branch to the CEO, six levels. And we're organizing in marketing, which only span two levels of that six, uh, yeah. right? So you had six for the whole organization, CEO at the top, you know, someone working in the branch down the bottom, and we had two. Can you imagine what it was like trying to do an organisational chart where you can only have, yeah. well, head of marketing and everyone else? And so they they literally said, well, just create these interim, you know, steps in there. So we ended up with this organisational chart that basically had level, I think it was three, so CEO was one, we were at three and four, and then we had 3.1, 3. 3.2, 3. <laughs> That sounds really motivating. <laughs> So you're 3.1 a three today and we're promoting you to 3.2. Do you have that system at Trinity P3? No, no. <laughs> we have me and everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> a five to Right. Trinity P3. It is part of a hangover of an old mentality that someone joins when they're, you know, graduate and stays with the company forever. I don't think anyone has that expectation anymore. Well, that's kind of, that's one of the weird dissonances, I think, in contemporary business is that we acknowledge that you do three years of job and go somewhere else, something like that, right? But then we also have this thing that high churn is bad. You know, these two things cannot logically exist. Like if we understand it's every three years or four years, then why are you looking at churn? Because they have to churn. That's the model. And one of the things that I really appreciated in the book was this idea of accepting that not, people are not in those roles forever. Because even in my own business, you know, I remember in the early days when someone would go to leave, I would have this visceral feeling of, yeah, yeah it's a catastrophe. Yeah. But then I quickly learned, no, it just was a change. It was like, you know, a change of pace, a change step bringing someone new in, they'd be bringing in new ideas and we could explore those and things like that. My biggest, as a business owner, my biggest uh, measure of success is when people come back, you know, that they'll leave to go and do something else and they might do it for two or three years and then, you know, I'll get a call and they'll go, can I, you know, is there anything I can do and welcome them back. You've had a few back? Sorry? You've had a few people back? Oh, I, I, in one year I had three people return that had left between two and five years earlier. And that's great because what they often come back with is a new perspective because uh, they've often gone back out into the advertising marketing industry and then they bring that sort of knowledge back into the uh, into Trinity P3. Because yeah, that's not a that's not radically dissimilar and everything I'm doing in this is comparing it to real life, as you know, yeah. but... That's not radically dissimilar to um, not having seen a friend for nine months. Yeah. And then you say, hey, Darren, let's catch up. That's, that's not awkward. You may not have seen them for nine months, but it's not awkward. Yeah. But it, normally what you're doing, discussing there, where I brought them back in, that's almost revolutionary. Like, oh, my God, they came back. But it shouldn't. No. It should just be like, yeah. Well, 
But I see it as a positive. Of course. And and when people leave, I go, just remember, the door's always open. You know, it's like the prodigal son, you know, from a religious point of view. But, you know, uh, that's the way I see it. So I went from the early days of being fearful of churn to now embracing it because, you know, people have to make the decisions. The people that work with you have to make the decisions that are right for them and their families. And as an employer... You can't be in a position of trying to stop them doing what's right for them. You shouldn't. Yeah. You shouldn't. Yeah. We sort of do. Yeah. Well, and, and you've got a good example there of where, you know, someone that they want to keep says, I'm leaving, uh, and and uh, what do they do? Oh, we've got a plan, yeah. you know, but we'll show you tomorrow. I love that. <laughs> I, had one, I actually had one of the guys who I coach. It happened to him like six months ago. It was so I burst out laughing when he came to goes, This is this has happened. I've resigned, like you said, yeah. we disgust. And now they've come back with they've got a plan for me. And I just burst out laughing. He's like, it's not funny. I went, it is funny. They don't have a plan. There yeah. is no plan. He's like, I know, they really seem sincerely. If they had one, they just would have given it to you. They yeah. would have said, Here it is, this is the plan we meant to give to you. But they don't have one. It's just something they say. And then they have to scurry around for 24 hours and go, what else could we give them? We'll give them a new title. We'll give them a pay rise. We'll present it to them. Yeah. But it's, it never works because the person wanted to leave. Well, and, and it's not true. And if it's got to the point it's where you've made a decision to leave, I think there's a big case of potential regret if you get lured to stay on. There is. Because you've all, like, psychologically yeah. you've made that Even. decision, I'm out the door. And they, what, what was that thing for uh, Godfather Part 2? Just when you think you're out, they claw oh, yeah. you back in. You know, it's like it's like that uh, that uh, example, yeah. But it is kind of it is funny if you think normally if that thing about plans were true, there'd be all these plans everywhere. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and, and a lot of organisations say we've got career path plans for all our staff, and you go, not, really? Not really. What, beyond 12 months? I, I can imagine they could have it for 12 months, but if you're making plans for the rest of their lives, you know, seriously, that's a lot of wasted effort. I mean, the problem with all those plans is invariably if you're the manager helping people with their plans, that their plan is to get your job. Yeah. So it tends to be quite, your goals aren't really aligned to go, hey, I'm going to help you get my job. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, not motivating. So that's one of the things. You've raised that and it's not in the book. No. But this idea, you know, another behaviour is that I see a lot in corporate is never employing anyone that could replace you. And that's the succession is the one reason why you should be doing that, isn't it? Hiring people that... that could replace you and should replace you eventually. Yeah. So, I mean, two things. Like I've always hired people that I thought were at least as good, ideally better. Yeah. Not in any nice way, just because they'll do amazing work. Yeah. And then if they replace me, whatever. I think they're still going to just got to get through me. But succession <laughs> succession planning is a little bit, I feel a bit strongly about this one because it is quite, to some extent, it's not in the book, but it is a, a horrible construct yeah. to say to someone, "We, I'm giving you this job, Darren, to find your replacement. Yeah. That doesn't feel good. Because whoever you identify, let's say it's Liam, Liam's going to replace Darren. But, but I've, Darren. I've actually done that. Right. Uh, so when I was a creative director at J. Walter Thompson, they said you need to appoint someone as your yeah, deputy. Well, you, I've, I've done it too. Deputy. Yep. And I put them in place knowing that they could easily replace me. 
Because that was me structuring my way out of advertising with a lovely big redundancy. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I think in that situation, it works a treat. And that person underneath you is going, what's in it for you? You go, a big fat check. No, I didn't say that. No. Because <laughs> you need them to Please. be really hungry. Please. You want them to replace you. Yeah, <laughs> not doing your favour. Letting them know they're doing your favour could under, you know, underfeed their you, uh, uh, ambition. You wanted that giant, like, cardboard check that they hand to you. That's what I want. That's my motivation. No, but, look, yeah, I think that as a good leader, you should always be employing. And, and everyone always. points to Richard Branson and they go, because Richard Branson famously said, always employ people that are smarter than you, right? And everyone points to it. And goes, yeah, yeah, that's the way to do it. And then they go around and find people that are not a threat. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny actually having worked in all these companies where there's lots of conservative managers. They're everywhere you look at a conservative manager. And they've all got that bloody book on, on their bloody bookshelf yeah. or on their desk about Richard Branson who breaks all the rules. It's like, we work at Microsoft, guys. <laughs> there's no rule breaking here. <laughs> the not only if rule breaking is career. that book. Yeah. <laughs> Just do what you're told. <laughs> And that's one of the things that you highlight in the book, that a lot of this behaviour is actually driven by fear. It's, it's, I've reflected it? on this and I've interviewed so many executives and it started as the, you know, the meme of a corporate warrior, you know, somebody goes into battle. And after about 100 conversations, it's a corporate warrior. Warrior. That's <laughs> what they do. They just worry all day long. I worried. I'd go home and hang out with my daughter and she'd be doing something incredibly cute and I'd still be going, oh, but shit, I've got to get that presentation in. Tuesday and I wonder if Steve's done his bit and I'm thinking about that because I'm oh. worrying and to some Which extent, means you're not present. No. So my real life is screwed. Trinity P3. So, Liam, one of the things I noticed reading the book is about 80% <laughs> of it is having a lot of fun but making really good points about the, the folly of our behaviour at work, you know, this this corporate, the corporate charade that we put on. You do come up with some solutions. It's only the last 20 pages, <laughs> about 10%, you know, is actually providing solutions. Was there a particular reason for that? Well, in the beginning, there were no solutions. So, oh, okay. so it's an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're honest about <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, the intent was just right. Different examples, different examples, different examples, so that uh, a corporate warrior um, would understand that maybe the life they're living isn't that good at work. So it'd be like, okay, there's 60 examples. Then it was like, okay, what are you going to do to help fix the right? Now, the starting point for that was don't break the actual rules, like the written down, documented rules of your company, don't break them. But if it's not written down, break them. Do whatever you want. And the central tenet of it is to be honest and empathetic where you can. Yeah. And so primarily what we're trying to say is create little circles of trust, probably your direct reports or yeah. your, if you're a direct report of someone else. If you all have an agreement that you will be honest with each other, that means, for example, rejecting meetings without worry, getting worried about getting fired or giving negative feedback without worrying about someone getting defensive because the person's just like, oh, we've got a circle of trust. We can work like this. And then the second part of it is to try to conceptualise practically what's the worst that could happen if you were just yourself? The worst that could happen is over time they would get rid of you. Mm. But over time. And if, you're, if the average tenure is two to three years, 
why do you care? Yeah. You know, you're going to be gone anyway. But you could spend two to three years working in a job, being honest, being yourself, and still leaving on the same time frame. Wouldn't that just be joyous? Which is what I sort of did. I'd confront the fear that I did have, yeah. but I'd do it anyway. And I can see people around me going, you have no fear. I'm like, I have tons of fear and I do it anyway because it makes me happy. So uh, uh, that's great because you know, it reminds me of a conversation. I was in London and I was talking to a CMO, but he was no longer a CMO. What he'd done is he'd got to a point in his career where he got sick of having to play the politics of every big company that he worked in marketing for. And he, he resigned from the last job and he set himself up as a marketing consultant. But what he would do is he'd make a deal with the CEO on what it was that he wanted to achieve from a marketing perspective in measurable terms. And he'd say, I don't want to get paid a salary. I want to get paid commensurate with achieving that. And the first one, he walked into a bank, and I won't say which one, and there was very specific metrics, and they set two years to do it and a fee to pay when he achieved it. He said eight months later, he'd hit the number, said, pay the money, and I'm out of here, right? And he said it fundamentally changed how productive he was at working because he didn't have to be concerned about the politics and the fear. He had a contract. He either delivered or he didn't. And he said it fundamentally changed the way he approached his work. Now, obviously that's not available to everyone, but it was interesting how that unlocked for him a totally different way of working by not being concerned all the time about being fired or making sure everyone's happy with you or whatever. I mean, I'm just, it does trigger something for me at the moment, which is that notion of, Companies hire you sort of for your time. So they hire us full-time, yeah. permanent basis, for whatever that is. But really, they're still hiring us for time yeah. that we do versus the Not outcome. what you achieve. So what we end up doing is going, get it done, right? Get this job done. And so we get it done. Yeah. But one of the tests that is quite useful is once that project is done with a pitch or something yeah, else, yeah. you can say, before you even see it, it's like, what? how good is this? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, score it out of 10. Yeah. And it goes, eight. Okay, I haven't read it, but is it really an eight? It's like, okay, maybe it's a seven. Like, I still haven't read it. I don't know. Just before we I just want to know, like, what do you think? And then they go, six. Yeah. And it's probably a six. Probably is a six, right? Yeah. Because the job is to get it done, Yeah. not to get it done well. How would you get it done well? You'd do your best. But if you do your best, the company says, I don't care about the best. I just need it done. Mm. And so we set up these systems where no one's doing their best because mm. you're not going to be rewarded for your best. But it's also because the, the way we pay people is Correct. by the hour. You know? by and, the hour. and if I pay you for 40 hours, then I want my 40 60 hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 40 plus 20. Yeah. Yeah, I want 50% more. I don't yeah. want my pound of percent. I want my pound and another half as well. Yes. Yeah. Which is part of the ridiculousness of it, Ridiculous. which is we base it on now, you know, unless you're a, a, a transactional trades or, you know, charged by the hour consultant. You get paid a salary and then they there's this social pressure. And I know this because I've had a number of young people say, you know, they've come to me and gone, if I get up to leave the agency before 7 o'clock, I get dirty looks, yeah. right? Yeah. Like there's this cultural thing that you don't leave before 7 at night. Particularly but, but no one is focused on what time you actually got in. No. Bizarrely. 
It's a, it's a, even what I'm doing now, which might be off point, but similar to what you said, a lot of the work that I'm doing now is literally not even an hourly rate that is mm. compelling. Uh, it's just like a fee. Yeah. And then they how much work we do. I go, I don't know. To achieve Enough. a result, you get just, agreement about what is it that you want me to deliver. And this conversation takes like three hours normally to kind of go, seriously, you're not going to commit to a time? I'm like, I will make no commitment on time. Yeah. Just on what I'll do for you. And they're like, and it takes a while from the kind of go, but can we call on you anytime? I'm like, no, no, not anytime. Yeah. Quite frequently, but no, no, yeah. I'm not available for these things. This is what we're agreeing that I'll do. Yeah. I'll get it done. And if everybody do tend to eventually go, okay, but it's confronting for yeah. them because I want time. Because we're used to this time basis, you know, that it's not the quality of that time, it's the amount of that time. And if you can improve margin or profit, literally just profit by two to three million dollars, I don't want an hourly rate. To yeah. make two million dollars for you, yeah. that's not, that doesn't, well, just, that doesn't seem good to me. There's not that many hours in the year <laughs> no, to be able no. to bill enough to. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Look um, again. I'll I'll come back to this book because I have to say it's probably one of the best reads I've had for, from a business perspective right. in quite a while. So, but you know, Thank you. absolute absolute credit to you. Um, I, I can't recommend it more highly to everyone that's working in an environment that they're not feeling like they're being themselves. It's called the corporate uh, the corporate charade. Why not? Why not just be yourself at work? Where's it available? Can people get it Amazon and? It's only on Amazon at the moment, but it's in obviously it's in hardcover. I mean paperback and Kindle. And I'm resisting doing anything with voice because you're now hearing my voice. <laughs> but if I can find someone with a good voice. A nice audible book could be uh, I know. Quite good. I just need to find someone's voice to do it. Yeah. Well, uh, Liam Walsh, thank you very much. I wish you all the success. There's a, a last page says you're planning to write another one. Uh, yes. Well, I'm gonna, was, Don't tell us. No, there's two. Leave. There's two. Fantastic. Well, look, absolutely recommend it. Thanks for joining us today on uh, Managing Marketing. Before you go, I have got a question, though, and that is you have worked for some really big brands. I'm wondering if you're willing to share with us, from your perspective, which one was the most toxic? Thank you.